0: This episode is brought to you by Anderson Hauser. They are the leading supplier of measurement instrumentation with a full offering of process solutions for flow, level, pressure, analytics, temperature, recording, digital communications, and much more. Their excellence lies within their localized USA manufacturing and expansive representative network for product and application expertise in your local area. Learn more about Anderson Hauser at us.andrus.com. The link will be in the show notes welcome back and thanks for tuning in to oil and gas on shore where i am on a relentless pursuit to bring value unity and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time so sit back relax and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon This episode is brought to you by Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of energy. Hey, everyone. Look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck and a set of ace pods 2.0 which are the true wireless bluetooth earbuds all you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win simple now go get your swag on welcome to this week's episode i'm here with lisa hill vp of technology strategy at argon digital lisa welcome to the show
1: thanks justin glad to be here
0: likewise i'm glad to be here i'm happy to be here with you and you know we were talking before and it's you know we're kind of briefing like hey you know, what's, we should do, this and that. And I said, you know, you can always pause it if you have pets or kids or spouses, and everything. He said, no, I am in my shed in the backyard, which you have a beautiful looking shed. And this is, doesn't get published on video, but please describe did you, I'm assuming during COVID, you built this or was this something that you had done before?
1: I did. So COVID, you know, shut us down, right? We were all working from home. I was talking <laughs> to the owner of our company. And at the time, so my husband has always worked from home and we had, he had a home office, kind of a nice built out desk situation that yeah. we had put a little corner on for me for like doing the bills, right? So <laughs> yeah. I had my corner and when COVID happened, that became my life is this little corner in his office. So my mom just talking to him on the phone. He's like, I think it's going to be a while. You should build a home office, <laughs> right? So, I built a home office actually so there's this company tough shed where you can buy prefab sheds and so it is literally a prefab shed we had an existing rickety one in the backyard we ripped up down the metal we had an existing slab put the tough shed on top and then I hired a contractor to finish it insulate it add you know ac heater put in some built-ins yeah. That is
0: so cool because it's funny. My wife actually showed me Tough Shed's website because you're up in Austin, right? I am.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So
0: we're, I'm here in Houston and I don't know if Tough Shed's from Texas or whatever, but I just, I vividly remember her showing me during COVID saying, we should totally do this in the backyard. And you're the only other person I know that's actually done it with Tough Shed. And, you know, it sounds like you've kind of got you know, like they always say, you know, there's like the men's den or, you know, whatever that is, but you had an interesting term for it. What, um, what do you reference your office? One
1: of my from? other colleagues coined it my bitch barn <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. or my bitch <laughs> barn, depending on the day and the mood you get me in.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that is so cool. Well, I'm going to shameless plug for tough shit. I'm <laughs> going to put the link in the show notes because I think now people are still, you know, it's interesting and I think it's a cool place to start. Is So during COVID, obviously everyone to work from home. Now There's certainly some controversy as to, should we force everyone back at work? Should we give people the flexibility? If we give them the flexibility, do we get them to choose their days off? I'd love to hear your perspective on that. What's your thoughts on working from home and should we all get back to the office? Should it be a sort of a balance? What do you think?
1: That's actually a really tough question that I actually struggle with. And I actually ask lots of different people with different organizations what their thoughts are on it. Because I'm part of our management team trying to figure out what is best for our employees. So we actually had decided Our lease came up for renewal after about the first nine months of COVID. We decided to not renew it because we weren't there, right? So we saved, saved, saved that rent. And now we're trying to make the decision about going back. And really, the question is what does that space need to even look like, right? It used to be that we had our technical team, like our developers, solution architects, tech leads, things like that, were mostly working in the office. So it had permanent offices. And we had a lot of product managers who are working. They typically did a lot of work on client sites. And so they would be at client sites during the week and would come in just on Fridays. Well, everything has just changed now, right? Everybody's, our clients are used to us all working remotely. Everybody else is. And so what would even people want, right? I was always a in the office all the time person because I love the collaboration with people, I don't even know that that's what I would want anymore. We've been doing some like common desks, like having a space that we can go to. Actually, when we hang up, Justin, I'm going to head over there today. Once a week, I've been getting together with some of the team where we all just go and work there. We try and tee up anything that really could use some FaceTime and sitting down on a whiteboard together for those days. And then we work still remotely the rest of the time. I think that we're going to see it change a lot, that I think that people are going to demand the ability to work from home at some level, but I do think we need, I'm really yearning for that face-to-face time, and it's not so much to me about the getting the job done part of it, it's the social interaction part, the part that really makes me love the team that I work with that happens in between the meetings and when you're getting a cup of coffee and, you know, making fun of each other and all of that stuff. The challenge for us is also going to be though, when this all happened, we changed our workforce. We actually have a lot of people who are not based in Austin now. You know, there's this great resignation going on, right? Like as people are, we could kind of see that it was going to be tough, you know, tough to keep talent and tough to attract talent and limiting us to just the Austin market as we were trying to grow and needed to attract more talent, we really had to tap outside of just the Austin market. So now we have people who don't even work here. We're trying to work on what are other ways we can create that social bonding without being in the office 24 seven. So we're toying with things with like bringing everybody together for social events a couple of times a year, right? like so people in for a baseball game or for a party barge on the lake in the summer, our holiday party, those sorts of things to create more of that face-to-face time. I don't know with the true answer. We're still feeling it out. We are. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, it is. I mean, we're still slowly coming out of this. And again, it's a very complex question because ultimately, I think it depends on the company. I think it depends on your role. And I think it comes down to too, as managers is really, I think it, the emphasis on understanding your employees' desires is extremely critical because what drives some people doesn't necessarily drive others. So this blanket As a company, we're going to work Monday, Wednesday, Friday from the office, and Tuesday, Thursday you get off. Some people may thrive, and then some people might just be trying to survive, and that is not the intent. And I think too, a lot of it what comes down to is, you know, it's such a buzzword, but like the organizational culture within a company, it's I found through my experiences, it's hard to build that through zoom or teams. And so, you know, I think the idea of like bringing everyone together, you know, for events and having those team building experiences goes a long ways, but like you said, to tap into different talent pools, most companies now are entertaining the ideas of, you know, hiring people from all over the world and with our ability to work and have, you know, proven to management and investors and whoever else, you know, Key stakeholders that we can survive and we can actually do well not being in an office. It's very interesting. And so, what the office environment looked like five years ago, I think in the next five years, it's going to be an interesting sort of evolution. And I'm personally excited for it. You know, for myself, I enjoy the human interaction. I'm such a people person. I, you know, when I'm around groups of people, that's what charges me up and gets the creative juices flowing. But then I also do like being at home on certain days to really crank out. A tremendous amount of work. Cause when I'm in the office, it reminds me of being in elementary school. Like I, I was just bouncing around talking to everyone. I don't think I actually sat down and listened very often <laughs> and did any work. It was because when I was there, I was like, Oh, we're at school. It's a social event. You know what I mean? So yeah. anyway, well,
1: I'll, I'll tell you one thing some folks from our company are going to do this summer. One of them, his girlfriend's family owns a really large property in the South of France. Ooh, nice. Like an eight bedroom type place. And so They're going to go work remotely. A group of people are going to go work remotely from the south of France for the month of July. I love that. Which is just super cool, right? The time change isn't so bad. They can really sightsee, bum around during the day, work in the afternoon, early evening, still have good overlap of hours to collaborate with the team, but just hang out in the south of France. Really you know, I think that's awesome. And if I didn't have kids, I would totally be there with them. But our summer <laughs> schedules will not allow it. <laughs> but wow. I would otherwise, I would totally
0: be there. See that? That's so cool. And I think more and more companies now. Granted, and again, I think for just even attracting, you know, talent is if folks, all else equal, hear that you guys do that type of stuff, naturally, someone's going to go, well, "I want to work for that company. That sounds amazing. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Yeah. So you know, getting creative and finding ways to kind of stand out to just, you know attract talent, you know, that's another thing of how are we going to navigate through that? But anyway, I feel like this could be a whole conversation itself. And I do want to pivot because I respect everyone's time. And they're like, well, isn't this supposed to be about, you know, energy and oil and gas? And anyway, I digress, but I wanted to, so before we started talking, you mentioned, because we said, oh, we saw each other at Nape." and time flies, but you brought up an interesting theory. And I think you said, I'll let you sort of elaborate on what you <laughs> sure, were speaking sure. about.
1: So to continue to divulge away from oil and gas. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's some studies that have said that your relative perception of time actually changes with the amount of new things that are happening. So when you are a little kid, think about how it took forever to get to Christmas, right? It just time was so slow. When you're a kid, you have a bazillion new experiences all the time. And actually the way that your brain is working and recording memory actually changes your perception because it is having to write all kinds of new information because you are really learning new things just constantly. It's a constant thing. Yeah. As you get older that changes, right? You're not learning as many new things. You become, your life becomes a bit more routine. In time, your perception of time starts to speed. And it really, they say that it actually has to do with how your brain is writing memories. Now, I find that COVID has totally amped that up to a crazy new level because our encountering of new experiences was cut so far down, right? We all just were sitting in the same four walls day in, day out, not going out and interacting with people. And I mean, we all lost just a year, like it went like that. And it is because we just, our brains were actually processing, we were perceiving time differently. So it's not, it's not just you, it's actually a real thing. And so if you, to get time to slow down, you need to go have new experiences. So go on a vacation where you're going to lots and lots and lots of places, and you'll get that feeling of relative slowing as your brain imprints new memories. Pretty
0: cool. That totally solidifies the thought behind as you get older, time goes faster, which so I'm such a person of like, you know, against the grain. I always tell people like, you know, let time count itself. I typically don't say, oh, time's flying by because to me, like sometimes when we look, so my kids are six and three and, you know, my like grandparents are like, oh, I remember when she was a baby. I can't believe where does time go? And I'm like, it's felt like six years underwater. Like it's taken a long time to get here. (laughs) So, but I say that to say, I think part of that is because, you know, between our family and and our dynamic, we're always doing new things, you know, whether it's starting something new or whether it's a side hustle or this or that we always try and kind of, you know, again, get into new things all the time. And perhaps maybe that's why time for me doesn't like, I'll be honest, like time doesn't feel like it's really gone that fast but it's always like, whether I go back to school or whether I start this or do that, maybe that's why. And and that really emphasizes the importance. Yeah, no, that's, that really emphasizes the importance of like, you know, as we get older, it's so important to keep learning, to keep doing things that we've never done before. I used to ask a question, when's the last time you've done something for the first time? And as kids, it happens all the time. But as adults, it's like, well, I don't know. I tried a new like food a few weeks ago, but I don't know, you know? So yeah, I love it. There you go. That's proof in the pudding right there. Anyway, so let's pivot into subject matter here. You know, you have a very fascinating background. You've always been, from what it looks like, you've been involved with technology and science. You went to MIT, which is super cool. I think you're the only person I've met that has gone there. I've read a bunch of their studies and articles and stuff. But I'm curious, have you always been interested in sort of the science tech and data science stuff? I mean, as a kid, were you interested in like computers and tell us a little bit about growing up and how that evolved into, you know, what you're doing now in your career?
1: Yeah, it's actually funny. I always loved math as a kid. So we were, my parents were sailors and they used to, I was sitting on a sailboat, bore it out of my skull with no wind.
0: Where, where was this? Well, let's on set the lake stage.
1: Erie. I grew up in Ohio. So I'm on Lake Erie. It's so a big okay. lake. Real yeah. sailboat, yeah. <laughs> not a little sunfish. Like this, this <laughs> sailboat it was actually a Twenty Two when I was a little kid. So what? So not that big of a boat. A Tinsel Twenty Two. When it would we be out there with no wind, I would make my parents would take a notebook and they would write. Sheets of math problems. And so I would do math problems for fun. I'm such a geek. But <laughs> I would do math problems for fun on the boat in Ohio in the summers. So I've always loved, loved, loved math. My dad was a physics teacher. So I got kind of the science stuff from him, but my mom was an art teacher. They were polar opposites. Ah. So I also really had a great passion for art. And so when I got to high school, it was a real big decision point for me, which direction I wanted to go. Did I want to go like the math route or did I want to go the art route? And I actually seriously considered going to art school. What actually made the decision was I decided I wanted to make money, that it's hard, hard, hard making a living as an actual artist. I had a summer job where I was a portrait artist. So I knew like firsthand, like, you know, I was a decent portrait artist, but people judge you having that judgment of something that you're creating is hard. And I decided I really didn't want that as my like life's work. And I was like, I could always do that as a passion on the side. So I made the decision to actually go to MIT, I was going to pursue math, I ended up majoring computer science, actually mostly on a dare from one of my college roommates. She was going to major in computer science, and she kind of dared me to do it with her. And I was like, that's fine. I'll try it. And I was like, we had a math with a concentration in computer science option. I thought that would be more marketable. I'm always really practical, right? So that'll be more marketable. I'll do that. And so when she dared me to major in computer science, I was like, that's fine. Most of the core classes are the same. I'll just drop back to math with computer science if it gets too hard and it turned out it never got too hard so I ended mm. up graduating but having a passion for it it's interesting i love technology but not really for technology's sake i really the part of it that i love is applying technology to solve people's problems so i really enjoy the working with stakeholders to figure out what are they struggling with and how can i help them and how can i make their problems better in reality, like it's been a long time since I actually wrote a line of code. I've, you know, I, I've done my time, but it's sure. been a long time. That's really the part of it that I get joy from.
0: Yeah, no, most definitely. And so, kind of going back to the MIT thing, what was your experience like going there? I mean, because from like the outside looking in and being from Canada, you know, MIT and those schools are looked at to be like. Amazing. And I'm sure you probably have lots you know, of great things to say about it. But what would you say was the best experience going through MIT? And what was your biggest takeaway, say, from going to a school like that? And the reason I ask that is because there's a lot of sort of controversy as to, you know, schools are becoming so challenging you know economically for people and you know sometimes they're like you don't need a college education and you know just go take that money and start a business and you'll learn just as much. But from someone who went to such a you know highly sought after school, like what's your thoughts on that topic?
1: Yeah. So I only went to MIT. I didn't go to other schools. But one thing that it had a perspective of was really teaching you how to learn. So like we would have our tests weren't You, well, we're going to teach you all this stuff. You memorize all this stuff, and then you take a test where you show all the things that you just learned. That's not how it was. It was here's all this stuff we are teaching you about. You need to innately understand it. And then your test is going to be applying that information in order to do something that we haven't taught you. So you are really learning how to do and apply information. And so I feel like that perspective and approach is hugely, hugely, hugely valuable because it is not a, I took, you know, I memorized the periodic table type, you know, right. Right. It is, how are you going to take all these fundamentals that we are teaching you and apply it? And that goes down to even like the languages that they taught like computer science classes in were like, you know obscure languages people don't use, right? Like we're really good for illustrating the fundamentals. In fact, I was, you know, I've already said that I like practical. It was my first year, they actually was the first time they prototyped teaching kind of the major CS class in Java. So it had always been in like Tickle TK before, right? Like, which is just not something used in practice. And I'm dating myself a little bit, but Java was like new and cool. (laughs) But (laughs) that was like a big thing and a shift to be like, hey, should we change the language to actually also have practicality as opposed to just a language that was truly illustrating the concepts. So they were adding some of that balance, which I think is good. So it's not just solely theory, right? So there is a practical element that taught, but it is not a CS boot camp type atmosphere. It is really a becoming really good at learning on your own and taking information and synthesizing it and applying it to new situations, which is really what life is all about, right? It so, is. You know, is there still a place for a higher education like at MIT? I still think that there is. Is that required for everybody and every like person that comes through life? I don't also think that that's necessarily true, right? So it may not be that every single person needs to get a college degree. Certainly not every person needs to have an MIT degree. And lots of different people can be successful through lots of different paths. Did I get something out of my education? I would say Yes. It did open a lot of doors for me. You know, if you're looking for an interview, and I mean, I've been here for 17 years now, so it's not like I go looking for interviews a lot, but (laughs) but when back in the day when I needed an interview, the door was always open for that first interview with just kind of the name of the school on the resume. Now it doesn't get you the job. You still gotta interview and know your stuff and be able to communicate and all those things, right? So it's not a free pass to life, but Does open doors that would be much harder to open if you didn't have that accomplishment. And part of it, I think that what you're saying with something like an MIT degree is you're also showing a stick to itiveness, right? That you've been willing to do the work and go through it and get to the other side. Frankly, all the MIT classes are available online for free. You can go get an MIT education. Basically, online now, but you can't get the degree, right? And the degree shows and improves that you really were willing to put in all the work.
0: Yeah. No, that's a great answer. And I think a lot of it, too, to kind of sum it up in my own head, is it ultimately like considerably increases the surface area for opportunity to land on. And like you said, you know, especially with, I'm sure the faculty the alumni, it certainly can open doors and then it's up to you to actually execute and make things happen. But no, that's a great answer. And I appreciate you sharing that with me. So to pivot again a little bit here, I want to talk about, you know, Argon Digital, but you also, interesting thing about where you're at is you recently wrote a blog within Argon Digital's website and it was called Thoughts from Energy Data And this came after, from what you had written in there, your second in-person conference. And you had some really interesting takeaways. And I'd like to speak on the first one, which is especially interesting and I can really identify with, is who owns the data? You know, again, this resonates with me being in the upstream space. In Canada, people were much more willing to share data. And then when I made a transition down here into the US, it seemed that like, kind of like you mentioned in the article, people hold data extremely close to their chest with fear that if they disclose data, that they're giving up a competitive edge. So I'd love for you to talk about this and hear your thoughts around this
1: topic. Yeah. What you experienced, Justin, down here, because I'm always down here, right? <laughs> like, is really, it has been that holding all that data. Our first data extraction project that we actually did in the oil and gas space was for a company that actually sells data. And so their business was like, they'd go to the county courthouses and they'd go to like download information from the Texas Railroad Commission. And we were taking like directional surveys, right? that were there, they had to have been by regulation, had to be published. And I'm telling you those directional surveys, like while they were there, they put them in the worst format possible for consumption and analysis by someone else, right? And so we could see that they were chewing everything they could to not share that data. It is interesting to me that at some point, I think that we are going to move past the data itself being the thing, right? Data is one thing, it's how you analyze that data and how you apply your own insights and thoughts and ideas, and then use the data to prove your point that is going to become, I think, that differentiating thing, not so much the data itself. And so I think we're so, I see the industry has been so scared to release that, relinquish that power that they have by holding the data. And I think that really we could see. Even more transformation in the industry if we stopped being worried about the data itself so much. Which right. Just holding the data, just having data for the sake of data is just actually a big cost center, right? It costs a lot of money to store and maintain all that data. It's the analysis and applying your own knowledge and your own tools that you're developing to it that creates that differentiated value. So I can just imagine how much we can accelerate the path of kind of evolution of this space, if we were to pool all those efforts with, you know, subsurface data in the same way that, you know, we have publicly available, like, you know, just other geological data, right? It's very interesting, and you know, at Energy and Data, you know, we had you know folks from some, you know, like Chevron be there and talking about really wanting to move in this direction of creating standards and sharing this information. I think that if we can get enough big organizations to kind of back it, I think that we're starting to see that that shift where folks maybe can start to let go and know that they're not, people are just standing on their shoulders to get an advantage ahead of them, but together they're stronger, right? Right. You know, you don't need to recreate and redo and reprocess and all the stuff that someone else has done. You do the next set, right? We'll do this set. You do that set together. Both sets of data makes a better picture than just what you happen to have from the piece of land you own or, I happen to have for
0: the piece of land I own. Yeah, no, that's so true. And it kind of goes back to a gentleman that I follow a podcast I listen to his motto is we is greater than me. And it's not Adam Newman for anyone asking. It's not a we work thing, but we is greater than me. And again, I think to accelerate the innovation and to keep things moving, it's imperative that we not necessarily give up, but are just more willing to integrate each other's data or to share it and to have Platforms and I read on the article you mentioned it was a I think an open subsurface data universe that like there would be like essentially an open access to subsurface data and everyone could access it and that in itself would like certainly help accelerate innovation and transformation in the industry and so while there's some that probably would say well no we need this but you know again the data is there and so why not leverage it as much as possible as an industry instead of it be you know us against them all the time it's a mindset. And I think, and again, through observation, as a shift in generation moves into, you know, whether it be management, leadership, I think there's a different mindset there. And I would suspect that we are heading in the right direction, but it's going to take time just because, you know, it's sort of been drilled into our heads, some companies more so than others, and I won't name any, but that really just don't want to give up data. And again, I think we're heading in the right direction. But one thing that you did touch on is just having data for the sake of having data. But I think the biggest question that people don't often have an answer to is what problem are we actually trying to solve with the data? Can you elaborate on what your thoughts are with that?
1: Yeah. you know, I think that I mentioned that the data is just a cost center if, it, if you're not doing anything with it. What we're often seeing is that people are trying to maybe assess the value of an asset you know or a piece of land that they should we purchase this or not right should we drill here or not how should we tune production right like all of those questions that you're trying to answer are really important questions with multi million dollar kind of outcomes on the other side of them right and so having the right information to be able to test hypotheses validate assumptions that is, is super super critical however if you just are having a project that is collecting information for the sake of having it it's not gonna get you anywhere right you have to it really needs to be in the spirit of what is it we're trying to do we talked a lot about you know these organizations this is not a new problem like there's lots of companies that we deal with that you know has like Boxes and boxes full of well logs that are just like literally sometimes sitting in like boxes and like super expensive downtown real estate like cover like you know declaring lots of square out dollars for square footage of office space. No kidding. Because it's, because it's just there, and they sometimes do need information that's in there, right? You know, maybe your the pressure test data that you're working with has been transcribed, like really many times over over the years, right? And so you're like, is this really correct? I really wanna go back to the original file and make my own judgment on that. Being able to pull that and get that information, the actual source material quickly so that you can make the right decisions or be able to get to it at all because you know you just can't find it and all this stuff. So it is really important that we're putting in these systems that are taking these really unstructured documents, all these like pressure tests and directional surveys and you know leak repair reports and all the stuff that we have that we've accumulated over the years and getting it into a way that we can that we when we have those questions, we can pull the right information back but I think it has to start with the question of what is it that you're trying to ask of the information, right? And for different organizations is going to be different questions that you're asking, right? If you're a pipeline operator, you have different questions than if you're, you know, doing exploration, right? It's just different questions, but it's the same kind of data that's coming out. And so I think that, you know, I think that's Part of that open sum service data universe, the OSDU, like mission is to try and create a standard for this data so that different parts of the organization, you know, you're all looking, it's all the same. Well, at the end of the day, it's all the same. Well, right. The different groups who are interested in different ways can have that view into it that they need to order to answer the specific kinds of questions that they're asking. And so when we work with organizations that are doing this for themselves, that are taking their well logs, pulling the information out and storing it, one of those things that we start with is what are the questions you need to ask of your data? What are you trying to do and solve for? Because that's the angle by which we want to extract the information, store the documents, be able to access it, right? We want to make it be so that it can solve the kinds of problems you're trying to solve.
0: Yes. And that's so true. And so that really leads me into my next question related to Argon Digital. So, I mean, what kind of clients do you typically work for and what problem are you trying to solve for those particular clients?
1: Yeah. So we have a kind of large business that's focused on all kinds of really using technology to be a strategic advantage for our companies. So, and we tend to play in a couple of different spaces in one in B2B commerce, one in enterprise content management. When we're working in oil and gas type, like with oil and gas clients, it tends to be solutions that are really doing one of two things. One could be taking documents that are maybe that are still in those file boxes, maybe they have been scanned and they're just sitting and cluttering up a giant file share, but really they don't even know what they have. And so figuring out automatically using technology to classify what kinds of documents be able to break the well log apart into its component parts, and then automatically extract the data that is relevant to them and get it into some system where that data can be analyzed, processed, dealt with, cleansed, whatever needs to be done. That's kind of the first half of it is the getting the information out of the documents. And the second side of that is having that source documentation in a place where organizations can quickly be able to find it, right? So it doesn't take five to six weeks to like pull all the relevant information about an asset where you can really, we've had clients be able to sit down at their GIS and click on a piece of pipe and pull up all the documents that like show the maximum allowable operating pressure prove that through all those documents by clicking on a piece of pipe right and so help with that side of the equation so being able to have all that data that they might need for validation of their assumptions for maybe an audit for you know compliance or a lawsuit right all of those things to be able to pull all of that, Evidence kind of quickly and easily. That's kind of where we tend to play in the oil and gas space, is really with document, unstructured data type solutions.
0: Gotcha. So I'm curious, what does the future look like for Argon Digital? I mean, this is especially a space, technology, data. I would say we're somewhat at the tip of an iceberg, but what is Argon's digital vision for the future and what does that look like?
1: Yeah, that's a really, really good question, actually. So organizationally, we have, in addition to kind of the technology areas I talked about, also have had a large focus in product management type services. So really helping organizations figure out what they need to do, how can they apply technology to solve the problem they have, prioritizing the right kinds of features, making sure that they're not building things just for the sake of building things, but are really tying the things that they're investing in towards things that add value to the organization. As we kind of look and are forward looking for our company, I think that we are going to see that we are, instead of for in those spaces where today, maybe we are just kind of playing a product management role, we're gonna continue to evolve and kind of expand the technology services that we add. And we tend to be, have a particular sweet spot situations where we're providing kind of greater automations or integrations throughout kind of uh, an organization. So not just implementing this one pinpoint system, but really looking at what is the holistic thing that you're trying to do? Maybe it's to improve your overall customer experience. And so having all the parts of your organization working together to have you know sales data and marketing data and operational data coming together, so that you have anyone who is interacting with the customer, whether that's a customer self servicing that or if it's a customer you know working you know with some rep from your organization, getting that right picture for them. So I think that we're going to continue to see a lot of expansion in these areas surrounding kind of automations for our clients, really creating instead of lots of Silos having a cohesive kind of experience both for the employee and for their end customers. Wow.
0: No, that's fascinating. And so what I'll do is, at least I'll put the link in the show notes to Argon Digital. And I'll also put the link to the article that you wrote. I think, I mean, obviously folks can find on the website, but it's a really neat short clip of sort of your thoughts and take on from the conference that you went to. But what's the best way for people to reach out to you in the event they, you know, whether they have questions about Argon Digital or some of the things we spoke about today? what's the best way to reach you?
1: Yeah. You can always reach out. Like there's a form on our website to reach out. You can reach out to me specifically. My email is super easy. It's just lisa.hill, argondigital.com. Or you can you know, always use info at, and if you say, Hey, I've got a question for Lisa, it'll make it to me.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Well, that sounds great. I'll make sure and put those links in the show notes. And one last question I have, and you know, maybe you have been thinking about it since I had mentioned it at the beginning, but for you, Lisa, when's the last time you did something for the first time?
1: Oh my God, Justin, I should be prepared for this because you even said I know, question I planted
0: the seed. <laughs> I normally don't plant the seed to give people time to think about it. So now you had time.
1: That is a good, good question. I am definitely in a kind of stuck in a rut time of life, right? Where my yeah, I get it. days are filled with kids' work and kids' activities. So the last thing I did something actually new, I mean, like major life things. <laughs> like I lost my parents fairly recently. And so
0: I'm there was like hear that. a
1: lot of new stuff surrounding that and that process. I am, you know, what has become somewhat of an expert of what to do when you have aging parents. So, you know, people can reach out to me on that front as well.
0: No, that's actually really <laughs> good. And the fact that you're offering up that level of support and help for someone, I think is huge because my, own. My father passed away a few years back. My mom's, you know, she's, I would hope that she's got a few years, but mentally, you know, things are slowly starting to deteriorate. And that's just a challenging topic to cover. And especially, you know, whether it's friends or family. It's tough. And I've had a lot of good advice given to me by colleagues or friends that have had that happen to them and sort of how to prepare and things to consider that you wouldn't think about otherwise. So yeah, that's super genuine of you to say, if someone needs help with that, let me know.
1: Yeah, it is hard. And I thought that I was well-prepared and in hindsight, right. There was changes that I would have made even to that. So you know, I think there were a lot of new experiences along that path. We went scattered last summer. We went scattered their ashes on Lake Erie. Oh, on nice. the start mark of that boat that, you know, yeah. wasn't the same boat, but with friends that we sailed with back in the day.
0: Wow. What so, a wonderful celebration yeah, of life. I like it. It was
1: great. So that was a grand new experience for me.
0: Exactly. Well, moving forward, I encourage you to take a few moments, you know, at some point and say, what's something new that I could try? And maybe even it's a different route driving home or going for a bike ride somewhere is different that you never explore. But anything, I think it helps shape us and keeps things exciting. And Lisa, speaking of exciting, this conversation has been great. Hopefully the listeners enjoyed it. I'm sure they did. But for the listeners out there, please share it, spread the good word. And I encourage you at the very least to reach out on LinkedIn and connect with Lisa and check out all the fascinating things that Argen Digital is doing for technology and within the space of energy. Lisa, any closing last words, words of encouragement, anything before we close out?
1: No, this has been great, Justin. i love chatting with you. I'd love that challenge to try and do something new. Let's <laughs> all have time to slow down just a little bit for us.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, thanks again, everyone. And always remember when the density is up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.